All right. Hey, everyone. How's it going this morning? It's great to see you. So, you guys, I have a confession, and that is I've been trying to hide from you that I need reading glasses now, but it's unavoidable as, long, it's, as well as like my receding hairline. It's, I feel like I'm just completely falling apart up here, but um, yes, this is me. It's still Andrew. I wear, I wear reading glasses now, uh, but genuinely, you guys, we're so thrilled that you're here with us uh, to worship Jesus. Again, the purpose of these gatherings is to celebrate the victory of Jesus and then to, yeah, come on, and then to come underneath his teaching and to pattern our lives after him. Um, so will you please stand with me because uh, we're gonna have a reading from the scripture. All right, this, uh, this scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 12. Like av- after a long doxology about the goodness and the greatness of God, this is what the scripture says. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another, and do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and find your seat. So you guys, next week we're going to get back into our series on the letter to the Galatians. Uh, But for today, we're going to talk about something that's really been on my heart for a while uh, to share with all of you. And if you've been with Riverbend over the last couple of months, you know that this year... Um, is all about us going deeper into Jesus' vision for prayer and worship, for making mature disciples, and for loving our neighbors. So our invitation is for you to go all in with us on sort of reorganizing your life around the radical lifestyle of Jesus. So this is not time to like play consumer Christianity. I think most of us in the room have had just about enough of that. We're actually calling you to pray with urgency for an awakening to the gospel. And our desire is for you to emerge through all of the uh, crucibles or the trials of life with authentic and Christ-like character. And we believe that the point of life is really to become like Jesus, and that's what truly matters. But it's time that we sort of re-emphasize an aspect of this lifestyle that we haven't talked about in a while, and so I think it's timely we talk about it now. I believe that this is crucial for you to be successful. Like, if you're going to actually become like Jesus, genuinely become like Jesus, you need community. Now, community is an idea that we like in theory, but for many of you, you don't buy into my premise that you actually need it in order to thrive in your relationship to Jesus. You think others do. You go, yeah, no, definitely, like community is a nice idea and everything else, but 
you're high functioning, you're super self-aware or whatever, and so you can get by with just having a couple of good friends. And by the way, if I'm being too blunt right now, first of all, I apologize, but uh, email Brooke. Uh, that would be, um, direct all of your complaints to him. That would be fantastic. Um, but let me explain to you why I believe that community is so essential for all of us to thrive, and then we'll also talk like biblically what is community actually look like. Um, this conversation begins with a quote from Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, Nick Offerman plays Ron on this sitcom, Parks and Rec, and he's the boss of the main character, Leslie. And in one episode, let me just explain it to you really quick. Uh, in one episode, he comments to the main character, Leslie, about why it's not working in, in her relationship with this guy that she's dating, who on paper is like this really great guy and they should wind up together. But this is what Ron says, He's, and, and hang with me, because this is like a like prophecy into our culture. <laughs> He's a tourist. He vacations in people's lives. He takes pictures. He puts them in his scrapbook and he moves on. All he's interested in are stories. Basically, he's selfish, and you're not, and that's why you don't like him. I think it's such a useful cultural critique. The first time I heard that, I was like, oh, it just struck me to my core. It's like, I'm going to use that in a sermon one day. And here we are. That phrase, he's just going on a tour or doing a tour in people's lives. In other words, he's like building an amazing Instagram feed, collecting experiences, building an illusion of relationship. But once he's used you, for what he can get out of you. You know what, you're not really doing it for me anymore. He finds some excuse to leave. Now that statement, I think, shines a light on a problem in our culture. We live in a time and history marked by intense loneliness. In fact, as we were praying before the gathering started, we, we just kind of got that sense from the Holy Spirit that there are many of you here today who have been like on the fringe of uh, life and faith with God and in a part of the church for a minute, but you still feel lonely and like maybe you don't belong. We live in this time of hyper-individualism and what I'm going to call relationship without commitment. Meaning we want the benefits of meaningful relationships without the work of commitment or the risk of devotion. And this is something that is... Uh, systemic in our culture. So, uh, sociologist Sigmund Bowman, uh, in his book Liquid Love, he wrote on the frailty of human bonds. He writes, in a consumer culture like ours, which favors products ready for instant use, quick fixes, instantaneous satisfaction, results calling for no protracted effort, foolproof recipes, all risk insurance and money back guarantees, the promise to learn the art of loving is a promise to make love experience in the likeness of other commodities that allure and seduce by brandishing all such features and promise to take the waiting out of wanting, sweat out of effort, and effort out of results. Come on. At some point, that system just breaks down because love without commitment is not real love. Put another way, the Western world is producing and tolerating like a low-grade version of narcissism, where people use you like you're a commodity to consume. You're being offered up on the altar of their happiness. I want you and I'll involve you as a part of my life until someone or something better comes along. 
And again, this is just symptomatic of our culture. My relationships have become basically just about me getting what I want. And at first, that arrangement or that system, it works okay for a while. It's, things are quick, convenient, low risk. But what we soon discover is that it's shallow, it's on the surface, and that we're sort of contributing to the chaos and the brokenness in the world around us. Relational tourism essentially is inhuman. It's inhuman. And it causes all kinds of relational trauma. We're, we're guarded and, and we're more cynical, I think, especially now. Like, I, I feel it in um, our society and I feel it even in our community. We're, we're more cynical about people. We're more guarded around people than we used to be. The past couple of years have kind of messed with us in that way. Full, disclo full disclosure, there have been moments over the last couple of months where I've wondered, like, genuinely, who are my true friends? Because it feels like whenever someone reaches out to me, they just need something from me. And of course, that's not true. And I'm not complaining to all of you. I know that there are many, both in this community and out of it, who love me deeply and are true friends. But I feel like you can relate to my experience where you feel like, man, I, I, I've got a lot of people who hit me up when they need something but how many genuine friends do I, do I truly have? So we have this defense mechanism to look out for ourselves, and that's what uh, individualistic culture has taught us. We've, we've, we've been learned and we have trained to be isolationist and to be okay on our own. We cope by basing our worth on our achievements or numbing ourselves through distraction-type behaviors like binging Netflix or whatever the, the case may be. Now, I, I hope that you can't like fully relate to what I'm saying, and I hope you feel like I'm kind of overstating it, but unfortunately, I think the sad reality, both inside and outside of the church, that uh, we're, we as believers, we're affected by this, and we are influenced by this sort of relational consumerism. So uh, what about some good news? Uh, that's why we came here today, is to pattern our lines after Jesus, so it's not all gloom and doom, if you will, but... Um, the good news is that you are actually built for a different reality than that. You're built for something more than that. There are core longings of your heart that go unmet in a system of relational tourism. Who will love me for me? Who will know all about me, the depths of my heart, and stick around? Who can I trust to share my life with and my vulnerabilities with? What story am I a part of? Where do I belong and to whom do I belong? Those longings for you, they might actually feel masked at the moment uh, because you've been sort of beat up by our culture and grown numb to it. Maybe even some of you have caused this pain. You're like a part of the system and are essentially using people. But you will discover in life that there is this deep sense of inner peace that comes when those core needs are met by God's design for community and love in the family of God. It is baked into your and my DNA as relational beings. That we are handcrafted in the image of God to be in deep relationship with one another that just goes beyond relationships of consumerism. 
What can I get out of this person? What can I get out of my relationship with this person? And that's essentially what the relationship is all about. When we press deeper into what God calls community, we actually live into uh, something that's far more rich than we would have otherwise. Some more good news. There is hope, actually, because despite all the challenges that we face as people of Jesus in our time, because the possibility for real relationship has opened up because of the cross. You see, the cross enchants our imagination. It enchants us with hope for a life that's filled with real love. See, Jesus shows us what real love is by willingly embracing his cross, enduring the shame, and he's carried along by his love, his animated love for you and I, not because we had our act together, but because he loved me for who I was in spite of all of my mess, and the same is true for you as well. So at the center of community is a Christological vision of Jesus being doggedly pursuing his people through the cross. So the hope that you have is not like an abstract ideological framework that you can't put a face or a name to. You are being invited into a rich and beautiful story that finds its climax with King Jesus giving new meaning to relationship through sacrificial love. And this is the picture that we are meant to internalize. I think the best example of this that I can find in the scriptures is Jesus on his cross. In his final breaths, he radically reframes and redefines family by looking at his disciple John. John was the only disciple who had the courage to hang it out with Jesus until the bitter end. He was actually there um, on Golgotha watching Jesus die. And then he puts him together with his birth mom, his, Mary, in, in the scriptures. And he says, John, behold your mother. And he says, Mom, behold your son. Because both of you are looking to me as Savior and King and Lord because of my victory that I'm winning here right now. It fundamentally changes how you look at life and see relationship. You are the beginning of a brand new family. You belong together. Are you guys with me so far? So the center of Jesus' vision for community is his sacrificial love. So into that world of relationship without commitment, we actually become like living examples of a completely different paradigm where the foundation of love is devotion to each other. And it's so important that you get this because this is this is how, again, how your deepest longings are eventually met is by devoting yourself to community. I wholeheartedly believe that if you give yourself to community over the next couple of years, the rich fabric of relationship that you develop with those 12 or so people will be so incredible for you and life-giving for you. But it also symbolizes to the world and shows off the possibility of what a love relationship can look like because we have Jesus who unites us. Devotion, commitment, these are not a part of the secular paradigm, but they are essential in the way of Jesus. Again, this is, I think, what Paul has in mind in Romans 12. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. So like us, the church in Rome had all kinds of issues. They had... Uh, racial discrimination. They had imperial issues. This was the heart, the epicenter of civilization at the time. And they had religious pride issues. And Paul, so it sounds somewhat similar to our day and our church. Paul is writing so that they would truly thrive in community. 
He says, you want to know what Jesus' heart is for us? Here, here it is. We need a culture. We need a culture that is countercultural to the empire. It's countercultural to consumption. We need a culture of sincere love. We need a culture of devotion. We need a culture of honor. That's it. That's what we need. Here's how I think we're supposed to see passages like Romans 12. Uh, they're like rules for a loving family. Rules for a loving family. See, rules have been sort of like falling out of style, like since the beginning of the 21st century, or maybe it was before that. I'm not really sure. Uh, but I think, you know, it's 2022, so rules are coming back into the mainstream. I think that would be a good thing. The right rules coming back into the mainstream. We've been so down on rules, but, but genuinely, though, rules, especially when they're informed by the heart of Christ, are actually really, really good. Even the most high-functioning families need rules to live by. Did you know that? Like, for example, in the Rothrock house, we don't wake each other up without making coffee first. You just wouldn't never do that. That's rule number one. We never wake somebody up without bringing them a piping hot cup of coffee. Rule number two is we don't rush each other out the door when we are getting ready. We understand that it takes time to look pretty and it doesn't, is not entirely sure how many pairs of shoes that we might have to try on. So we just sit there patiently and wait for everyone to be ready. Which, <laughs> I feel like I'm bringing up some relational tension in the room. But I, 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 by the way, that, those rules were harder to follow before I had Judah, my son. It was like, now I've got a buddy and we hang out and we just wait for when everyone's ready. So, uh, so what's the point, again, of the, of the rules? Because I, I know that as I'm talking to a group of people who need to be explained why rules can be good. We're not talking about like embracing a culture like an overbearing Catholic boarding school from the 1950s or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. The rules are so that things will go well between us, that we have a shared framework and understanding about what life is supposed to look like for people who follow Jesus. So a loving family understands that we have rules to live by so that we can actually thrive together. Can you imagine waking somebody up without coffee? Just a horrible idea. But waking up to like a piping hot cup of like, I don't know, light roast Guatemalan or something like that, that's just like the perfect way to start the day. In the family of God, our rules, they're informed by Jesus' heart and his vision. So they're not overbearing. They're actually so good for you if we would submit to them and surrender to them. So here's the first one from Romans 12 that we read. Practice sincere love. It's not shallow. It's not fraudulent. It's not self-serving relational tourism. It's sincere. Meaning when it's put to the test, it holds up. A, a stunning example of sincere love uh, went viral a couple of years ago. It's been a story that has stayed with me over the years because it's so powerful. You might remember it. There's a young black man named Brant Jean in Texas whose brother Botham was killed in his apartment by a white woman because she thought it was her apartment, and it wasn't. And she walked in on this man innocently sitting on his own couch, and she shot him. 
It's just like this unbelievable tragedy on top of all of the red hot layers of racial inequality and prejudice and all of that. And she was convicted of his murder. And Brant, who is his 18-year-old younger brother, had an opportunity to give an impact statement before this woman was sentenced. Uh, I want you to just think about that for a moment. What would you say in that situation in like a racially racially charged cultural moment, having just lost your brother because this woman had made a flagrant and quite honestly just stupid mistake. And what he said to her was, I can speak for myself. I I pulled the quote because it was so, uh, so meaningful. He says, I can speak for myself. He says, I forgive you. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want for you. I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. And then what's crazy that happened after that is the woman who had been convicted of this man's murder started weeping because obviously she felt horrible about what had happened. And now Brant, this 18-year-old man, asked the judge if he could approach the, the, the stand and give her a, a hug which should not have been allowed, by the way. It was, that's, uh, that's, that's a breach of all of the courtroom's rules and all of that, but the judge allowed it. And this woman wept on the shoulder of the man whose brother she killed. And it was like this profound experience of love that's completely supernatural. That's the love of Jesus. And I, I, I cried when I watched that video. I actually rewatched it this week in, in, in preparation for this message. And it just moves me to my core. And that's what we, when we talk about sincere, generous, self-giving love, that's the kind of love we're talking about. And the distinctive mark of the Christian community is that kind of love. In other words, this is what Jesus said was going to be the thing that everyone could tell we follow him by. This is the clearest evidence. A couple of the lesser known, lesser quoted verses in the New Testament on Christian love. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. And then he explains why. He says, you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. In other words, because we have a hope that outlasts this life and that one day God will make everything right, we live into that reality today by giving ourselves to sincere love and we love one another from the heart. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.9 says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do all love God's family throughout Macedonia, and yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do it more and more. So he says, I don't have to tell you guys about this because you uh, already love each other. Uh, In fact, you love the whole family of God. But you know what? But for good measure, let's keep on loving everyone else. Like, like, make sure that you love one another deeply from the heart. I love that. And if you've been around through our series in the letter to the Galatians, you know that this is uh, something that Paul is wrestling through with the early church again and again and again. Is that every uh, one is able to love their, 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 their little nuclear family or people who are like them. But Jesus is his call and his invitation to us is to love people who we disagree with, 
who are different from us, who don't subscribe to our secondary values and things like that. He's saying, I want you to love everyone in the family of God the way that I've loved you. Um, Tutor, uh, a second century church father named Tertullian, he, he wrote, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with each other. He said, all things are common among us except our wives. Which is actually really tone deaf when I said it out loud. I was like, ooh, don't cancel me because that, that, that sounds very tone deaf. But, uh, but I love the heart behind it. He says, we, we have everything in common. We're not polyamorous. We don't like uh, break our covenant to only be with our spouses, but everything else we have is in common. I love that. And Tertullian was convinced, actually you can read his writing, he was convinced that real love was the main reason why people were converting to Christianity while at the same time it was a capital crime. At the same time that it was a capital crime, you could be executed for trusting in Jesus, the numbers of people who were falling after Jesus were skyrocketing, and he thinks it's because people witnessed and saw the genuine love of the believers that were there. I love that. I love that. That kind of love is attractive. And I think that community is a grace-filled practice where God trains us to do battle against cynicism and against emotional numbness and against the tunnel vision that we get in our radically individual culture. And in community, we are contending against the stuff that keeps us from really loving each other well. So the second rule for our loving family is to devote yourselves to one another. Devote yourselves to one another. So this is uh, completely different from what we experience in the realm of relational tourism in Western culture. For example, in, in 2022, a normal part of the secular lifestyle is that you can have sex with a stranger using an app on your phone tonight, if you chose to do that. Skip the romance, skip all the get-to-know-you stuff, skip the, the commitment to one another, and just have sex. But in the scriptures, relational intimacy is always connected to covenant promise. Relational intimacy and covenant promise go hand in hand. God does intimacy inside of a covenant. So I need to explain this uh, for us to fully understand it. So just hang with me for a moment. Um, there is a major plot line in the story of God where in the beginning, Yahweh creates humans to enjoy his divine hospitality in the Garden of Delight. You know that story well. And then he gives himself, God gives himself in relationship by making promises and keeping them. That's how God does relationship. He makes promises and he keeps them. But we don't keep up our end and sort of forced out of the garden. But then to compensate for our rebellion, God continues to make more promises. He just comes back over top of our rebellion with more promises. And those promises are to restore relationship and to restore what we had in the beginning. First it's Adam and Eve, then it's Seth, then it's Noah, then it's Abraham. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then he promises to Abraham again, and then this guy named Jacob, and then this guy named Joseph, and then Moses, and then Joshua, and then Ruth, and then David, and then Solomon, and then Isaiah, and then Jeremiah. He just goes on and on and on. Throughout the story of God, he's making promise after promise. Ultimately, one day I will make all of this right again. I promise you, you can take me at my word. I'm going to restore what has been stolen and taken from us. That's the heart of God. That's how God works. And it's a major plot line in the story. Again, that informs how we devote ourselves to one another. We're meant to follow in that same pattern. 
is to devote ourselves to each other even when maybe people don't reciprocate in the same way because we believe with prophetic expectancy, with anticipation that God is doing something deep beneath the surface. The foundation of New Testament community is to uh, submit to and surrender to the way that God deals with us. Jesus is a covenant maker and a promise keeper. That's who he is. That's what he's like. And the victory that happened on the cross was only possible because Jesus was doggedly committed to the Father's plan to make everything right and to rescue you and me through, uh, through the cross and to accept you into his family. Um, another sociologist, Lewis Smeads, writes that when you make a promise, you tie yourself to other persons by unseen fibers of loyalty. You agree to stick with people you're stuck with. I like that. When everyone else tells them that they can count on nothing, they can count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are there with them. You've created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability, and you've made a promise that you intend to keep. This is the kind of community that we need. We need people like you who have the inner daring to play your part in the story, to make serious promises to one another, and to have the grit to keep them in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so um, in order for that to take place, you need real effort. You need real devotion to have real relationship. And you've made these kinds of commitments to each other. And if you have made these commitments to each other, you know that this is not an easy thing. And what I'm suggesting to you costs you something. It's risky. For example, uh, I remember a while ago, uh, I met up with one of our community leaders, and he was having several issues with his community. Without getting into it, they were basically like about to break up over some things that they couldn't really resolve. And um, the first thing that comes into my mind when I talk to people who are going through this kind of a thing, and you've probably experienced something like it in your days as well, um, community holds up a mirror to the immaturities that I have in my discipleship to Jesus. Whether I'm aware of them or not, now they're out in the open. That's the healthy part about community is it helps bring to light the areas of my life that are still not formed into the image of Jesus. So the leader of this community is wrestling with like the awkwardness of all the conflict and where are we going to go from here? How do we resolve all of this? Wondering, does this mean that I'm failing these people in some way? Am I messing this up? And my response to them first was, no, you're not, actually. Um, community is messy. It's filled with people like me and you, and we're messy people. And as they were sort of explaining what was going on, I realized how deep and uh, how complex some of their dysfunction was. It's a pretty serious kind of issue that they were going through. And then I started to wrestle with it. And I started to wonder if, uh, man, I, I, I was having a hard time trusting that the Lord was going to make things right. I deeply care for the people in our church. And I know there's been so much like relational hurt and brokenness that's caused by the church, and I hate all of that. And so in my wrestling, I, I was like tempted to just jump in and try and fix what was going on. I wanted to step in and handle the conflict. But as I was sort of hearing their story and praying for them, I felt a deep conviction in my spirit to not artificially prop up the community by doing the hard relational work for them. 
because it's important that we realize that the crucible of long-term family relationships is actually God's grace to us wherein he's forming us into mature disciples of Christ. So for us to step in too early would be cutting them off from the grace-filled opportunity for them to grow. So I sort of like resisted my impulse and desire to jump in and fix. Instead, I just said, hey, I'm gonna be praying for you guys while you meet. If you need me, you know how to get a hold of me, but best of luck, I'll be praying. And at the end of the night, I remember looking down at my phone, I just gotten a text from the leader, and it said, like, I'll fill you in later, but it went like the absolute best case scenario. People were raw and authentic and real, and of course, there's a long journey in front of us. We still have a lot to work out, but God's made his direction clear. We know what we're supposed to do. And I just absolutely love that result. It might seem ordinary to you, and in one way it is, but it's also really hopeful to understand that it is possible to actually have genuine reconciliation when we show up and are willing to be raw and vulnerable. So here's what I think we want to know. Isn't there some way that's far easier than wading into all of this relational conflict and tension and awkwardness and stuff like that. Isn't it easier? Isn't there an easier way for us to have meaningful relationships but um, leave aside the messiness or the riskiness? And I think that our culture has kind of mastered that, the easy way. It's like uh, just taking uh, an example at random. You could do like a, I don't know, like a 10-week study on a book that was written by John Piper or John MacArthur or John Calvin or John Wesley, whichever John you like the best. You could do uh, a study, a pastor that wrote something 20 years ago, 200 years ago. We could all sit around, we could talk it through, and then we could share our preferences, we could share our disappointments about the other things that we agreed with or disagreed with about the book, or we could express our opinions, our preferences, our disappointments about the other events that we've attended, like this gathering, for example, you're like, yeah, it's all right. I mean, he had some all right things to say and worship was good, I guess, or whatever, but I didn't like how they did this or that. See, in our culture, we're so good at giving our critique and our opinion and talking about what we did not like or what we did or didn't agree with or what we didn't um, receive from it. And then at the end of your 10-week study, it's over. We take a good long break, we made some friends, and we know which people we're not gonna invite back next time because they were weird and awkward and made it kind of funky or whatever. And then we just end up feeling really good about what we know, the knowledge that we've assimilated into our brains, and about the loose, convenient connections that we've made with each other without actually devoting ourselves to anyone. We've shared our knowledge our opinions, and our preferences, but not our lives. We've perfected that in our culture. The casual, loose relationships where I give you all of my thoughts, but none of myself. And that is a tragic place to be, but I understand why we're sucked into it, because it's easier, it's safer, it's convenient, 
it's much, much less work. It's less awkward. And by the way, I'm not down on Bible studies. I am actually planning several uh, for this year and next year if I can get around to prepping all of it for us. But Bible studies, um, they come up short. Of, of true biblical community because we have a sounding board for our ideas, but we don't have a mirror that generously exposes the gaps in my maturity to Jesus. We have friends and we have a good hang and some inside jokes, but we don't have a sister or a brother who doesn't need me to pretend that I'm okay when I'm not actually okay. We have the convenience of a weekly meal, but we don't have the assurance of loyalty in the family over the long haul. We have a space to dialogue, but we don't have an ecosystem of love to live it out. And we have like well-crafted doctrines, but we don't have a living and powerful witness to our city that proves the gospel of Jesus is real because we are devoted to each other. So there are some strengths to it, but the weakness of the model is apparent. We need more in order for your deepest longings to be met and in order to regain a compelling voice in our culture. John Tyson's this pastor out of New York, he said this, we've been formed by modern church structures and culture in such a way that we don't have the skills or the character to make the kinds of commitments that produce the communities that we actually ache, long for, and read about in the scriptures. So what we want are easy on-ramps and exit ramps without any drama where all of our needs are met. It's a fair point. And here's the problem with it. Is that expectation is literally impossible to meet on those terms. You can't actually have real intimacy without commitment. It doesn't work that way in life. So you need commitment in order to have genuine relationship and intimacy. So uh, I want to invite you into my world for a minute. And we're almost done, by the way. But just like go with me on a thought experiment. If you're a pastor here at Riverbend, this is what we think about. The best laid vision for church rises and falls on this devotion to one another in love. The problems I'm describing uh, in Western church culture that you've probably felt at some point or another is systemic. You can't point to one leader or one person or one group of people even who are responsible. Here's like a stereotypical example of how things work in modern church paradigms. The casual relationships of that 10-week Bible study that I suggested to you, they work fine. There's no drama at all until there's a marriage problem or a health scare or something like that. And because we're leading individual lives, the, the small group that you might be a part of, they might hear about what you're going through or something like that. But if they do, they, they, they might help for a bit or up to a point, but they don't really see it as their responsibility to carry your burden and to be with you through it all, to cry with you, to grieve with you. It's not their burden to carry, or so they think. Then, in some situations, the situation gets pushed up to like a church leader, like a pastor gets involved. And the pastor deploys what I call like the crisis squad, and it's like the people who are really empathetic and generous people, and they do care, and they do show up, and they do bear people's burdens. They pray, they serve, they bring food, they cry with those people who are grieving, they show up for them. But then there's another crisis, and the crisis squad has to kind of like pack up and move on to the next one. And then the leader of the crisis squad has a crisis, and then the people who've been in the crisis squad for three years have responded to like 40 things. 
and they're tired and numb and frustrated that other people haven't joined it. And they feel like they're the only ones. And then the pastor or the elders, they don't fund it properly, so it's not well-resourced. And so the thing starts to come off of the rails. And all of a sudden, the convenient, easy, no-drama study is no longer cutting it. And we find ourselves in a desperate place, looking all around, grasping for people who actually belong to us and that we can truly lean on. But our system isn't built to handle it, and it can't. Whose fault is it? That's the point. It's everyone's and no one's. It's systemic. It's, we all have a part to play. So the problem with the structure, and, and the problem with the structure has been informed by lots of evangelical churches over the years, including churches like ours, and our paradigms and secular culture and all of that. But it's not informed by the scriptures, taking Romans 12 at face value and just saying, I'm going to do what it says. Remember, uh, Acts chapter 2, this is the last scripture, by the way. You guys have done really good hanging with me over about 45 minutes of me ranting about this stuff. But thank you for doing that. Um, Last scripture for today, Acts chapter 2, this is the launch of the early church. So um, they were the first ones to apply the teachings of Jesus in life after the sending of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the scripture says in Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says they, meaning the, the first people of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is like, yeah, come on, so good. It's like the archetypal Christian community in those early days before all of the brokenness and stuff that followed it. But this was like the archetypal image or picture, if you will, of, of community. Um, John Tyson, that same pastor I quoted a minute ago, he uh, reworded this passage according to what he calls the gospel of preference. The gospel of preference. And it's a little snarky, so be, be warned. Um, it says, they studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. They went to fellowship when they could fit it in. They prayed when they needed something and got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectations for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity but kept all of their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays, they came to corporate gatherings. They didn't invite people into their homes, and they rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people, and occasionally someone was randomly saved. <laughs> so if that uh, was a little bit too close to home or whatever, blame him, not me. He's a pastor in New York. I'm getting off easy today. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I gen genuinely, though... I think this is the heart of something that we as a group need to wrestle through. It's not my intention to make anyone feel ashamed. Again, I'm saying this is just systemic. This is kind of the air that we breathe. And so we need to be retrained. And that takes a lot of 
right thinking and prayer and time together and all of that. But my point is that when we pick and choose practices from the way of Jesus that we like and want to participate in, and then we wonder why we don't have the same fruit and power as the New Testament church, it's clear to me why that's the case. Because we're not submitted or surrendered fully to the vision of Jesus. Maybe it's because we've built a community around our preferences and not the scriptures. See, Jesus is not driven by, like, our preferences. He's driven by commitment to one another in love. That's our framework, too. So when we talk about Riverbend community, which we do six times a year uh, at Riverbend, we have a basics class to help launch you into community. Um, it's not just about talking the, the Bible stuff out together. It's actually about practicing and doing what it says. We want to encourage you to practice sincere love, practice real devotion to each other, practice honoring others above yourselves. It takes more trust. It takes more inner daring. It takes way more grit to keep serious promises rather than the casual loose ones that we're used to making. But it ends up actually working and actually transforming you over a lifetime. A loving family reshapes you and is there for you when you genuinely need it. And I can speak from firsthand personal experience on this, that my community over the years has been God's grace to me, has seen me for who I am, all of my flaws and all of my good things as well, and they have stayed by me, they have served me, they have cared for me, they've been willing to speak up when it's Maybe difficult to do. People tell me I'm a hard guy to disagree with because I'm passionate and intense. But um, they do in a loving and gracious way. And they win me over and they help me see the areas of my life that I still need to grow. And it's also deceptively and sneakily very life-giving. Because on the one hand, it's just an ordinary commitment that I make. Just like Thanksgiving with my family or whatever, every Thursday night, this is what I'm devoting myself to. It's very ordinary, but at the same time, it over time has brick by brick, like week by week, has built an entire way of looking and moving through the world, and I need it. I wouldn't consider growing old without biblical community. I just would not do it, and that's not to say that I've curated for myself a community of people that I always get along with. It's actually the opposite. We ask you to do this, and so I made sure that this was the case for me as well. I'm not handpicking, selecting my community to just be all people that I like to go climbing with or something like that. It is actually been intentionally set up to have people from different walks of life, different personalities, different leanings, different demographics even, and we're just saying, you know what, we're gonna devote ourselves to one another. And this is not the quick fix. This is not the instantaneous results. This is not the consumer brand that you're used to consuming. You need to risk devoting yourself to people over a period of several years. And over time, you build up those unseen fibers of loyalty. So as we close, I just want to invite you, and I, hopefully I made my case. Um, and, uh, and I understand that for a lot of you, you've, you've kind of walked in Christian circles for a while, and you've heard lots of people like me make these kinds of claims that it's life-changing, and yet for lots of us, our experiences have been mixed, mixed at best. And so what I'm inviting you to 
is to not trust me, not take my word or whatever, not to even base uh, what we're talking about here on your past experiences as much as we're saying, you know, we're going to trust that Jesus' vision is the best vision that we could possibly live into. And we're going to trust that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. And yeah, it's going to be way more difficult than the loose, casual relationships I'm used to. But I'm actually going to devote myself to it. So uh, the takeaway is simple. Practice the rules of a healthy family. Love, devotion, and honor. If any of this has felt like a slam on you or the church, please don't hear it that way. I, I, that's not how I meant it. All I'm trying to do is sort of expose the broken system that we've been a part of. And by the way, COVID has been crazy weird on communities, mine included. It's made things even more difficult. So I understand hesitancy. But the invitation is to come back to life with him. To come back and to agree with and surrender yourself to his vision for a community. And I trust that as you spend time devoting yourself to brothers and sisters, that it will radically reform and reshape you. And it will also make an imprint on our city. So... Um, as we close, I just want to remind you, six times a year, we host a community basics class, which happens on Sunday afternoons, and we launch new communities out of that every single time, and we invest heavily. Yeah, it's been really, really good for Natalie. Uh, Natalie's having a... Yes, okay. Oh, that's the best. Yes, thank you for the affirmation and the testimony. That's amazing. You want to actually stick around for next service and just stand up here? And Okay, sweet, okay. Um, yeah, like, like, like we, we host this again and again and again because the invitation is out there for you. That if you're ready, we're ready for you. And we want to call you into deeper relationship. So starting on May 15th, we're going to have our welcome, lunch, and basics class kind of all combined together. And then there'll be another week of uh, basics on, on May 22nd, the following Sunday. And then our dream is to launch a new community out of that group. So you are welcome. Please register. Please sign up. We'd love to have you. And let's all stand as we pray. So um, we're going to just invite the Holy Spirit to come. So I want to just encourage you to um, shake off whatever distraction might be like coming over you right now and just remember that this moment has been devoted and consecrated, made holy and sacred for Jesus. And we're just going to reach out. We're going to connect with him. Jesus, we say thank you for how you've drawn near to us and how you've made it possible for this life. And we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and fill us right now. Make us aware of your work. Make us aware of your presence here in the room. And I just feel like I'm talking to a group of people who've just gone like, okay, all right. Community, huh? Like giving myself to people, like I tried that. And man, COVID was like the perfect reminder of how crazy all of humans are. It feels like a big risk to jump in. I just wanna encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit into that doubt. 
notice as you give yourself to the Lord right now and as you open yourself up to him coming in, notice just how incrementally that faith in you begins to rise. That when you come back to center and fix yourself on the Christological vision, Jesus is King, he's Lord, he knows what he's talking about. He's got all authority. Just want to encourage you to come underneath that authority today. The authority of Jesus. I feel like this is a moment where we can actually acknowledge maybe aspects or areas that we've been holding back. Again, no judgment. No shame, there's not guilt being like put on your shoulders today. It's actually just releasing toxic ideas, releasing broken structures. So I just encourage you by the spirit to just let go the things that have been keeping you from saying yes to everything God has. Holy Spirit, again, I just invite you to come almost like a new wave. We were praying before the gathering and a vision I had received a couple of days prior was confirmed through our kids director, Eva, which was just like the the rain or the water from God being poured out, symbolizes life, symbolizes vitality. And that each of us here are just like gathering and like putting into buckets the love of God and the goodness of God and the, the, the breath and the spirit of God. So just allow yourself, open yourself up to being filled by him. Scripture says, Jesus says rather, I am the living water. So we come to you, Jesus, and we just just say we need that living water would you pour out yourself on us today just notice how the holy spirit is working in you as you let go of cynicism and doubt he fills you more with his love you're still guarded it's okay i'm not No one's coming down on you, but I just invite you to let that guard down. I think you'll be so pleasantly surprised at what's on the other side of just saying, God, I need you. So if that's where you're at, just just in some way, verbalize that to the Lord. That can be under your breath. That can be out loud in any way is acceptable, but just let him know that you need him and that you want him. And now I'm just going to pray a prayer of blessing over you. God, I pray that you would fortify us. You'd fortify our hearts, that you'd strengthen us, fill us again the strength to choose devotion over casual relationships, to choose honor over dishonor and disrespect, to choose respect and self-giving love, 
That's what we do right now. I pray you'd fill us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Hey, you guys, um, during this next song, I want to encourage you to come forward, grab the bread and the cup. We'll take it together as a church after this. And also, um, if the Lord uh, is stirring in you and you need emotional healing, um, we may have touched on a few pain points today. Um, our team is in the back at the Praying Hands. We'd love the opportunity to pray with you, for you. And we just encourage you, that opportunity is out there and is open for you. And then, of course, let's worship, let's sing, let's praise to the Lord. Okay, let's do it.